morning, friends. Good to see you again. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Psalm 24. If you happen to come without one, there uh, is one under the row in front of you somewhere, should be at least. Um, please uh, open your Bible so you can follow along. There's an outline on the back of your bulletin I encourage you to use to keep your place. Psalm 24, this will bring our study of the Psalms to a conclusion uh, that we've been studying this summer. Next week we'll be, Lord willing, in the New Testament and spending some time there. I encourage you to join us next Sunday. Hopefully the Gospel of Mark is what we'll be looking at. Let me read our passage as we begin this morning, all ten verses of Psalm 24. Hear the word of the Lord. The earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. This is the Word of God. This is His inspired Word. He breathed out the very words through David. It is in His inerrant Word without error in the original manuscript. And it's authoritative Word. This Word sits over us. We submit ourselves to it and place ourselves under this word of the Lord. So let's pray as we look into it now uh, this morning and ask for help. Indeed, Father, we acknowledge that these are your words and not merely David's words. And so, Lord, strengthen us to hear what you are saying through this text. Strengthen me to be able to proclaim your truth. And Lord, make our hearts receptive and pliable and moldable to... uh, do what your word summons us to do today. Uh, We entrust ourselves to you, Father. We ask all this through Christ. Amen. You may be familiar with the name George Frederick Handel. There's no TV in the back, no uh, camera in the back. Is he behind me? He's still behind me. Is the screen out back there? No worries. Thank you, men. So anyway, behind me you see George Frederick Handel. Uh, You may or may not recognize him. He's regarded as one of the greatest composers in history, in particular one of the uh, greatest composers in the history of the church. This is according to Dr. Steve Lawson. His famous oratorio is called The Messiah, or Messiah more properly, um, and has moved countless people to worship Christ, especially Uh, in the season that we're about to enter, or according to 
uh, home, uh, Hobby Lobby, the season we have already entered, <laughs> which is the Christmas season. The Messiah is often performed and appreciated during uh, Christmas time as it talks about the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, this masterpiece, Handel's uh, masterpiece, made its debut in London on March 23, 1743. Uh, during that performance, this gentleman here was, uh, nope, not him. <laughs> well, anyway, there's a slide that will show you a picture of King George II whenever they get to it. Uh, King George II obviously uh, ruling uh, Great Britain at that time. And he did something very unusual uh, during the performance of the Messiah. Uh, on that occasion, uh, when the Hallelujah Chorus portion uh, uh, was being sung and containing those powerful words, For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, uh, King George did something very unexpected. He rose to his feet uh, during the Hallelujah Chorus. Uh, many believe that this was an act of, of reverence on his part uh, to stand in recognition, recognizing Christ the King. Uh, of course, this had the effect of causing the entire audience to stand. And so... Everyone remained standing throughout the rest of the Hallelujah Chorus, uh, acknowledging the greatness of heaven's one true king who reigns over even King George II and other earthly kings. Since that time, it's been a custom for the audience to stand during the Hallelujah Chorus. So, word to the wise this year, when you hear it performed this year, you're supposed to stand during the Hallelujah Chorus. Psalm 24 is uh, something similar because it too summons the people of God to a response like King George II. It is essentially a call to worship. Uh, Psalm 24 calls us to understand what our God is like and then respond in, a, in an appropriate way. Uh, many believe that David wrote this psalm for the occasion we read about just moments ago in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, they were moving... No, that's not my slide. There we go. Kitchen back up. Here we go. So, uh, good job with the names, by the way, men, as you read through those. And the way to read biblical names is if you don't know how to say it, read it fast. <laughs> Bluff your way through it and nobody will be any the wiser. So it's uh, too small perhaps for you to see, but over here on the very left side of the screen is the city where the ark was located at the home of Obed-Edom uh, in Kiriath-Jerim. And as they made their way, uh, the first attempt we read about how a man named Uzzah uh, reached out his hand to steady the ark when it was on a cart uh, carried the wrong way to Jerusalem. He reached out to study it, thinking that his hand was cleaner and purer than the dirt on the ground on which it would rest. Uh, the Lord struck him dead, Perez 
meaning outbreak, an outbreak against Uzzah. And, uh, but this psalm uh, is uh, written at the occasion of the second attempt where they took the ark from the home of Obed-Edom and, and carried it all the way uh, to Jerusalem. Second Samuel 6 was relatively brief, and First Chronicles 15 gives us another description of that event, but with much more detail. And Chronicles tells us that David had assembled all Jerusalem for this event. They were there the first time as well. Um, the entire nation has gathered. Chronicles says that there are uh, that David had appointed singers and musicians to accompany this procession of the ark. And it says that this was an event with great rejoicing. And so 1 Chronicles 15, 28 says this about this event. So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets, and cymbals. And made loud music on harps and lyres, which is what this artist has attempted to depict. Uh, you see, first of all, the Ark uh, of the Covenant, center stage. But here you see him uh, attempting to portray the people who've gathered on top of the city walls and the, the Levites uh, blowing their uh, trumpets and all the assembled singers following behind. You can see uh, quite a long trail uh, in this uh, rendition. Uh, this psalm was a call that the singers probably sang on the way. And it was a summons for those uh, in attendance and those watching uh, uh, to worship the Lord, to uh, acknowledge and recognize who He was, and then to respond in an appropriate way. It serves as a summons for you and me as well. This psalm calls you to understand who your God is and to worship Him in an appropriate way. Not only our Heavenly Father, but for us as New Covenant believers, Jesus Christ, His Son. It's a summons for you and me to recognize Christ in His glory and to respond appropriately. This psalm, first of all, summons us to acknowledge His position. David calls believers to acknowledge the supremacy of God. And there are two things that he wants us to acknowledge here. And the first is that He is the owner of all things, everything on this planet belongs to Him. Look at verse 1 with me. The earth is the Lord's. Earth here, this term refers to the physical planet, planet earth. Uh, this belongs to God. And David says further, and the fullness thereof, probably a reference to what the earth contains, the, the wealth of the earth, the, the mineral deposits, its uh, rich uh, provision of, of crop, its fruitfulness. 
the Lord owns every aspect of planet Earth. Not only this, David goes on to say in the middle of verse 1, the world, that's the inhabited world. That's the region of planet Earth where people live. Uh, the area where people have populated, and then it concludes, and those who dwell therein. Every place where man lives belongs to the Lord as well as every human being that lives there. And so to sum up, planet Earth and everything it contains as well as every single person on the planet belongs to God. He is the owner of all things. He owns me and you. He owns the property your house sits on. He owns that vehicle you drive. Not GMAC. Not Capital One. You take care of it. But it belongs to Him. This is a Wow, I hope you see this is a sweeping and all-inclusive statement of God's dominion and lordship. He is the sovereign ruler of this planet and everything on it, including the people. And we acknowledge Christ as the sovereign ruler as well. Revelation 5 describes how Jesus... Uh, after his atonement, ascended to the right hand of the Father and sat down at his right hand with the Father on his throne, becoming a co-regent. He takes the scroll from the Father's hand, uh, the Father's plan for the rest of history, and Christ becomes the one who will carry out that plan. He becomes the executor of his Father's will. And at that moment, he also becomes the ruler of the universe. What is said about the Father in verse 1 can just as easily be said about Jesus Christ. He owns it all. And friend, this means you. One theologian uh, many years ago said it like this. There is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine. This belongs to me. So David calls the crowd to acknowledge the Lord as the owner of all things. But he goes on, secondly, to call them and summon them to recognize that he is the creator of all things. Verse 2 goes on to explain this. It gives us the reason why the Lord owns everything. Uh, notice how it begins. For that crucial little single letter of the Hebrew language introduces the reason behind verse 1. Why the Lord owns everything. Verse 2 says, For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Uh, we should understand this not as a scientific statement or a scientific explanation. This is, we are reading Hebrew poetry. Uh, the account in Genesis 2 says, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. 
at creation, dry land emerged from the water and seemed to rest on it. Uh, this is a poetic description of creation. Uh, David's using something called the language of appearance. What it appeared to look like. It, it, it appeared that the land rested on the rivers and the seas. Scientifically, we know that's not the case. The Bible allows for this. In, inerrancy allows for this. We use it all the time. We say, we talk about the sunrise and the sunset. Well, that's not right. The sun didn't rise. But none of us walk around saying, what a beautiful rotation of the earth we saw this morning, do we? <laughs> and this evening, what a beautiful rotation. I see how the world turned just right and the sun appeared to set in the sky. And David's using something similar. And uh, it's poetic. We allow for it. It does not mean he wrote in error by any stretch of the imagination. But these two verses tell us something else. They not only tell us how creation appeared, they tell us God created the world in a display of supreme and unrivaled power. Uh, because th these words, uh, verse 2, upon the seas and upon the rivers, are probably references to Canaanite gods. Canaan was the land Israel came in and conquered. And they worshipped two forces of nature. They deified the sea and the river. They called them Prince Sea and Judge River. And so when David writes this verse, he's founded it upon the seas. He's established it upon the rivers. He's saying he has built it... Uh, on top of these gods, nobody contested his power and authority. No Canaanite deity stood in his way. He crushed them uh, at creation. Nothing can match his supremacy, his supreme power and authority. Uh, the city that Jerusalem uh, was, was previously a Canaanite city called Jebus, the Jebusites live there. Perhaps it's a reference to the conquest of that city. He created all things. And He created all things with absolute supremacy. No God came close to rivaling His power. No false God, I should say. This applies to Christ as well. We know this, don't we, from Colossians chapter 1. Paul describes Christ as the creator of all things, for by him, by Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Uh, the, the, the Trinity and the Father uh, said, let us make man in our own image, and we know that Jesus Christ was the uh, one who carried out that command. The, he was uh, the instrumental cause of creation. Now, the Father said, let this be, and the Son put it there. So David summons the people uh, around the walls and, and in the procession and, and the choirs there. As the ark makes its way to the city, David calls them to, to, um, to acknowledge his supremacy, uh, to acknowledge 
Him as the sovereign Lord, the creator of everything. He, he calls the people around to a high view of God. And this is what you and I are called to. A high view of God. I read a book in college uh, called Your God is Too Small. An old book, but a good book, and says that half of us have a conception of God. We treat Him like an gr old grandfather who, who falls asleep half the time. He's a kindly old man, and we go to him. You know, he's nice to have around at Christmas time. Do you think of God like that? Or another misconception is to think of him as, as a, a, a mean judge, just waiting to be, bring down the hammer. Oh, there's an anvil hanging above your head, and he's got the scissors out, and just waiting to snip. One misstep and you've had it. This is how many of us think of God. David is calling us to a, a, an appropriate view of God, a high view of God that views him as the owner of everything. He has the right to own it because he created everything. And a high view of God, says Steve Lawson, is the most important thing about us. He, he comments, as a person's vision of God goes, so goes his life. One's life will never rise any higher than his thoughts about God. A, a high view of God will lead to high and holy living. On the other hand, a low view of God will lead to low living. No one, low living, no one can live any higher than his proper understanding of, of who God is. And so here David is summoning us. Know your God, know who he is. He's not some doting grandfather asleep in heaven who never does anything. He owns it all. He's the sovereign Lord because he made everything. And then David goes on to summon the crowd to a second thing. First, acknowledge his position, Israel. But then as, as the procession proceeds, the the, uh, perhaps the singers move on to the second verse of this song and he summons those along the way to access his presence. This God who he has described, we're actually able to draw near him. Which if you stop and think about it, is, is a pretty amazing thing. That little old you and me, ants that we are, can enter the presence of an infinite God. Look at verse 3 with me and, and hear him. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Uh, this hill uh, is most likely, according to the Reformation Study Bible, um, again, I apologize, this is small, um, but this is the city of Jerusalem in the time of David. Um, this is uh, the hill just above it to the north, uh, also known in the Old Testament as Mount Moriah. You recall perhaps that this is where um, Abraham, 
was going to sacrifice Isaac, and the Lord provided a ram instead. This is likely the hill. This is it would become the hill where Sol Solomon's temple um, was built up here as the city grew. Um, but that is probably the hill. Uh, verse 3 continues and explains uh, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place, likely because that is where um, David had erected uh, the tabernacle, the place of meeting um, uh, at that location. So he's asking what's required for a person to, to go up this hill and enter the presence of this Creator God who owns all things. What qualifies a person to approach without being struck dead like Uzzah was? How, how does someone draw near to a God like this? He goes on to, to name three things that are necessary. First, the person must approach with personal purity. This is in verse 4. Uh, let me read the question again. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And the answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Perhaps one part of the choir was singing this to the other part. One sang the question, the other part of the choir sang the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands uh, refer to not just your hands, but your actions. And a pure heart refers to motives. And so what David is saying is their holiness must be both internal and external. Holiness must characterize both their inner man and their outer man. It's not just enough to show up on Sunday uh, with clean hands and have the appearance of a Christian. It's not enough for the people of God to have made it through the week without punching someone or stealing something or, or saying something unkind. The people of God also had to be pure. Their motives, desires, and thoughts, God required them to match up. He required integrity from the person who would approach Him. The inside and outside of a, a person had to agree. Was this going on with you this morning? Wow, we better not go too far with that. Israel had a terrible time doing this. They had a, there's a huge problem both, both in the Old and New Testaments. In the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah addressing this thing. He also did it through Hosea, Micah, others as well. Um, but Jesus picks up the quote from Isaiah in the New Testament and, and addresses it to the Pharisees of his day and says this, the same thing Isaiah said years and years before him, speaking to the Pharisees, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. That uh, Greek term, uh, we could say uh, you actors, it referred to someone who wore a mask. Uh, the Greek actors on the stage as they performed in the amphitheater, uh, the hupokrites wore those masks, uh, you know, of drama, tragedy, sorrow, etc. So people could see their expressions sitting way out in, in uh, the nosebleed section of the, um, 
the uh, uh, arena. You mask wearers. You actors. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It goes on to talk about worshiping him in vain. The outside of the cup looked clean, but the inside was filthy, Jesus would say elsewhere. This is why the people of God had to approach him through the blood, sacrifice, blood of a sacrifice in the Old Testament era. And this is why the people of God have to approach through the blood of Jesus Christ in the New Testament era. It is only through His perfect sacrifice that you and I are able to draw near and approach His presence. If you do not have the blood of Christ's payment for sin on the cross uh, applied to your life, you cannot approach Him. You cannot enter. But the Word of God tells us in the book of Hebrews, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled uh, clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed. If you have put your faith in the atoning death of Jesus on the cross, Ephesians 3.12, I believe, says we can enter with boldness uh, we can have confident access, but have you trusted in, in Christ as your Savior and Lord? And until you have, there is no entrance for you to the presence. You cannot ascend the holy hill. You cannot enter His sanctuary without a sacrifice covering uh, your sin. These people of God had to be holy in action and thought, and, and so must we. But there's a second requirement he names here. Uh, not only must you approach with wholehearted, uh, with personal purity, also with wholehearted devotion. Boy, and now you're starting to get nervous. Oh man, what does that mean? And is that really required to enter God's presence? Look at what he says as verse 4 continues. This is the person who can ascend and draw near and stand in the holy place. One who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. To lift up your soul means to put your trust in something. Look, look down at the beginning of chapter 25 in your Bible. Look at that. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, in you I trust. It's uh, relying on either a false God or an inadequate source of help or some kind of man-made scheme. Uh, false uh, is used in its broadest possible meaning to, to refer to anything that we put in place of God. Uh, that Anything that could take us place. And so... Wow, sometimes that's our children, sometimes that's our uh, girlfriend, boyfriend, sometimes it might be our spouse, a career, uh, the person who does not lift up his soul to what is false. 
does not swear deceitful. He does not own that thing as his very own thing. What can this person expect? The one who approaches with personal purity with, and with wholehearted devotion. And David and the choir uh, interrupt the, the train of thought to say this is what they can expect. Verse 6, such... Uh, in verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. He will receive God's goodness entering uh, with pure hands and a clean heart and, and coming before him, not lifting his soul up to what is, what is false. Uh, and further, they can uh, expect his righteousness. Here that term means vindication uh, or approval. Uh, this person with these, uh, having met these two requirements, will be blessed by the Lord and re receive His approval as, as they come before Him. But there's three requirements, remember. And verse 6 goes on to name the third one here to us. Uh, we're summoned to access His presence with, with personal purity, wholehearted devotion, um, not lifting up our hands to what is false. And finally, with diligent searching, this is in verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek Him. Generation refers simply to a group of people who hold something in common. And this group of people, what they have in common is that they seek Him. It goes on to say, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. If there's a footnote here in your ESV Bible. Uh, the Hebrew text actually says, who seek your face, comma, Jacob. Uh, the words, uh, uh, the face of God, were probably inserted by a copyist because they didn't understand the reference to Jacob. Probably David was saying, uh, who seek your face like Jacob did. Such is the generation of those who seek your face, who seek your face like the patriarch Jacob sought you. Now, Jacob, in many ways, is a lousy example to follow. But there's one thing that he did well, and that he went hard after God. Remember when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so, uh, one pastor comments, there need to be more Jacob clones in Yahweh's holy place. Ones with the Jacob attitude that refuses to let go of God until he blesses them. This implies at least in part that many of the worshipers at the Lord's hill are desperate people holding on to Yahweh by their fingernails because they know they have nowhere else to turn. This reference to Jacob is really quite convicting. David and the singers are singing, Who can ascend his holy hill? Someone with personal purity. Someone who's not lifted up his soul to a substitute God. And someone who goes after you, God, with tooth and nail. Well, Pastor Rob, 
That might be fine for you professionals. But that's not for me. Isn't it? For you? Too? It's not just for elders, not just for deacons, pastors, missionaries. Yeah, missionaries, we'll put them there. This desperate attitude is what God calls us all to. He says it in Jeremiah. It's, it's all over the place. But Jeremiah says it well. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Psalm 42. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. It's in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Compare this to the feeling you get out in the yard. You pushed it a little hard. You've been out quite a while. You should have broken, taken a break for water a few minutes ago probably. And now you're a little lightheaded and you want water worse than anything you know. And... Uh, you crave it, and so you go in and you just chug down the water. And that's how that feeling of desperation right there when you stop the mower and realize, I need a drink. That's what this says. is the same way we should go after Christ. Christ Jesus, I, I need you like I need water in Georgia in August. This diligent search, think of how Jesus said it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. We give our strength to so many things, don't we? We give our strength to our jobs, our families, uh, our hobbies. We pour that energy into it. But, but as Jesus, Jesus, the ruler of this universe who owns everything because he created it and, and lifted up himself on the cross to pay for our sins and we hear love him with all your strength we, we suddenly grow weak and cold and, and sleepy and so David and the choir the second thing they summon the crowd to is they summon them to access his presence and David calls them to draw near with three things, with personal purity, with uh, wholehearted devotion and diligent searching. And again, we draw near only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Well then, and now, the procession has made its way. And in fact, it, it, we see in the next verse that they have reached the city gates. Uh, the 
musicians and the singers, especially the ark, arrive at the gates of um, the old, this old gray fortress, which is now Jerusalem. And what we see next is an exchange that, that again, it, it could have taken place between different parts of the choir. It might have been a call and response, uh, picturing what might have taken place between uh, those outside and those inside, the gatekeepers. Uh, however this took place, we can be fairly certain that the arcs reached the city. They are requesting admission. And here uh, we hear David uh, summon God's people to accommodate his arrival. And there are two things I want you to notice here. First of all, the accommodation that he calls for. Uh, look at verse 7 with me. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Um, this is what's called personification. He's assigning human traits to an inanimate object. We do it all the time. My father called his station wagon Josephine. Um, when it wouldn't start, you call other objects in your homes certain names. And this is simply calling the gates, probably the, the gates and the doors, uh, which also represents the gates, to, to lift up their heads, to, to accommodate themselves, to adapt themselves. It's as, it's as if the gates of this old fortress are, are too narrow for the king that's arrived. It's, it's that they're too small and confining for this creator, of God, who owns all things, too small for him to fit through. And, and so David says, make way! Swing yourselves open. The King of Glory is coming. He's here. And make accommodation so that he can come in. And so David, first of all, calls for this adjustment on their part to accommodate and adapt to welcome this great King of Glory. And then next we see the acclamation. In other words, they acclaim who this king is. The, the, David and the procession uh, describe him as a mighty warrior and, and the, the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 8. Uh, perhaps representing those inside or again one part of the choir. Who is this king of glory? And the answer, the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. They are portraying God is a divine warrior who fights for his people. This too, an image we see throughout Scripture that he is someone who fights for his people. For example, when Israel went through the Red Sea, he was described as a warrior there. Listen to the song of Moses as I read you a couple verses from Exodus 15. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And further lines saying similar things as the song continues. This is the way Jesus Christ is portrayed to us as well. Christ is portrayed 
not always this way, but in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus is portrayed as a divine warrior. Uh, let me remind you of what it says there in Revelation 19 at the second coming of Christ. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. White horse is always ridden by a conqueror. The one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Throughout the Bible, the Lord is described as, as a warrior fighting for his people. Then there's another call from the procession in verse 9. Uh, almost the same words, Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Uh, accommodate yourself. And then a second reply, a second question, uh, response to that. Who is this King of glory? And then the reply, the Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. Uh, it's the Lord of hosts. That's who it is. It's the God of armies. It's Yahweh who has all the hosts of heaven as well as all the armies of the Lord at His disposal. It's the sovereign Lord who controls and directs these forces at will. This is who's knocking at the door. Now you better open up and accommodate Him. That's who's outside. That's who's arrived. Wow. So David, the third summons he makes, accommodate his arrival. He's here. He calls us to do the same thing. He summons believers to make way for this warrior and Lord of hosts. And so I just wonder that today, if you've swung wide the gates of your life to allow Christ, this Lord of hosts, to, to enter and reign over your life. Oh, to reign over my life? Yeah, to reign over your life. That's what he wants. He describes it in, in words that you're very familiar with uh, from Revelation chapter 3, uh, where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. These words are being addressed to uh, the church in the city of Laodicea. And, and John MacArthur observed that Christ is standing outside this church requesting something similar to Psalm 24. Throw your doors open. Swing the gates wide that the King of glory may come in. That the King of glory may come in and save you to begin with. And this is what Christ asks of us, to swing wide the gates, to accommodate His entrance, 
Listen, listen to the sound of his knocking in Mark's gospel. And it says, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Have you heard and answered the knock that Christ is making? Have you swung wide the gates and allowed him to come in? Have you accommodated yourself for his entrance? He means to come in and reign. Yes, reign. He's not just a Savior. He is a Savior. He's also Lord. Lord. He owns everything. He owns everything because He created everything. Some of you have opened the door to Christ a long time ago and allowed Christ to come in and, and save you and you have given him control. The trouble is over time you know we kind of let that slip. You know Paul calls us to be living sacrifices in, in Romans 12, 1 and 2 and the trouble they say with living sacrifices you know what it is. They keep crawling off the altar. They keep crawling off the altar. And so, believer, uh, you that know Christ, is Christ still the Lord? Does His command, His gracious call, still resonate in your heart with a hearty yes? Lord, I will do that. As He calls you to surrender what is false in your life to Him, those faulty sources of help that you've lifted yourself up to, lifted your soul up to, those phony gods that you've put your trust in, as he makes this summons to the crowd in the city, God is making the same summons to us. Accommodate his arrival. Through trusting in him as your Lord and Savior and allowing him to be the king and sovereign that he is in your life. Well, this is what this psalm is. It's a call to worship, uh, to acknowledge God for who He is and then respond appropriately. And uh, in this call, this summons, uh, David has called the people uh, uh, who are watching this procession of the ark. He summons them to acknowledge His position, to see the Lord as owner and creator of everything. 
And then he summons them to approach his presence. Uh, how? With purity and wholehearted devotion and, and diligent searching, like Jacob's. And lastly, to accommodate his arrival at the city gates, to swing wide and make adjustments that the king can enter. So on, on a, another occasion when Handel's Messiah was being performed, another monarch was present. Um, they would apparently perform uh, Messiah yearly uh, as, a, and, as a special presentation to British royalty, and it was Queen Victoria. And those royal people in the know had told her how to act. Uh, in public, and especially at this event, because there were rules that she needed to follow as a member of the royal family. And she was instructed that she must not rise when others rose at the Hallelujah Chorus. She was told to remain seated as, as the reigning monarch of Great Britain. And when that chorus came and sung and those words, hallelujah, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. She remained seated with difficulty. It seemed that she would stand in spite of what she'd been told. And, and they came to the climactic part of the chorus where Christ is proclaimed as King of Kings. And suddenly she stood with her head bowed, breaking all the rules. feeling compelled to rise. And in the uh, gesture of bowing her head, it, it was as if she was taking her own crown and casting it at Christ's feet. May we come to do the same thing as Victoria, uh, as this psalm summons us to, give the Lord the glory due His name. Let's pray. So Christ, make, the, make uh, your word bear fruit in the lives of those who know you here in front of me. And Lord, I pray that those who have not opened the gates and let the King come into their lives would surrender to you this morning, Jesus, by observing your great display of your love for them on the cross. And Father, your display of love by sending your son. Uh, I pray you'd work through your word in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.